0: Today's episode is the first in a two-part series about leadership in the diversity and inclusion space. Now, it feels kind of weird to say that because I'm of the belief that all organizations should hold space for diversity and inclusion, but as today's guest will tell you, that's not always the case. Shana Hammond is the founder and CEO of Lead for Liberation, which is a leadership development organization dedicated to guiding leaders of organizations, school districts, and foundations to redesign their workplace cultures through the lens of liberation. Through Lead for Liberation's transformative group coaching cohorts and long-term partnerships, executive leaders within organizations and school districts across the country have co-created high-performing, interdependent organizational cultures where leaders and staff members thrive, innovate, and where they experience real belonging. And that is where we're going to take this conversation today. You're listening to the Beyond Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah May Chipczynski. It is my purpose in life to use the lessons I've learned from more than a decade of leadership experience in everything from business to politics to nonprofit and the military to help you become the leader you've always dreamed of having. Whether you lead a network marketing team, a Bible study, a global brand, or a family of four... Every week, I'm going to walk you through tangible ways to grow your influence and make your vision a reality. So if you're ready to drop the burnout and bullshit strategy you've been fed and design your own aligned leadership style, you're in the right place. Let's go. All right, Shana, I am so excited to have you on the show today. I'm sure this is going to be a great conversation, so thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited as well.
0: All right. So let's get started. Tell us, I know we just went through your bio in the intro, like your official bio, which by the way, is quite impressive. But tell me and tell the listeners a little bit about you, like who, not just what you've done, but who are you?
1: Yes. I am a mom of two middle schoolers. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I love business. Um, I'm also a teacher at heart. Um, in my bio, you probably heard that you know I'm a teacher. Um, I, that was my first profession and then was a school leader. But I very much see the world in that way. I'm a constant learner. I love people. It's my curiosity that really fuels everything that I do.
0: Mm, well, bless your heart for having two middle schoolers. <laughs> <I know. laughs> my four-year-old is well on his way to like He's, he's well on his way. So I, I feel for you. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's, let's talk about so serial entrepreneur. And I know you have multiple businesses. So let's, let's hear about all the businesses.
1: Yes. My first business is lead for liberation. We just celebrated 10 years and that's the organization. Thank you so much. We're really excited. Um, That's where we focus on organizational culture redesign. So we help organizations, foundations, and school districts redesign their cultures through the lens of liberation. And when I say liberation, I I mean that as the umbrella term for, yes, diversity, equity, inclusion, all those those wonderful ways of working um, that align us better to equity and justice. And it's just really sound, good leadership. Um, Something we believe in our organization is that you can't separate sound leadership from racial equity. That's really what it is. And so we teach organizations, specifically leaders, how to do that. Um, So I love that work. We've been doing that for 10 years. What was born out of that two um, two years ago was what's called Indigo Women. At Indigo Women, my second business started two years ago, is really specifically focused on Black women in leadership. Um, As I was doing work with organizations around the country, I kept experiencing and hearing very similar stories from different Black women across all sectors. And I, you know, I was just very struck by it. I definitely identified it as myself being a Black woman in leadership. And I felt as though this wasn't just another program. This really deserved its own space. And so Indigo Women was born um, very much, you know, influenced by my own spiritual growth journey and awakening. Um, and I call it my ministry. It brings me so much joy and we're two years in. I just wrote a book about it. Um, and really blessed to be able to do that as well.
0: Hmm. I love that. Um, I want to kind of focus right now on, on your first, uh, your first business on lead for liberation, because I spent some time looking at the website and it's, it's beautiful. Not just the website is beautiful, which it is, but the, the spirit of this company and this organization really is – it's it's stunning. And I think it's something that, you know, we – obviously, there was a place for this company. We don't see enough. Um, we're, I think, as a country trying to get better at diversity inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that really struck me about um, the, the business – was um, one of your programs, The Conscious Racist. Yes. Um, and I saw that and I was like, uh, what? And then, then I kind of, you know, read what it is. And it says a, a group coaching program for white executives and directors. And right. I would like to hear from you, like the the mastermind behind this program. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell me one a little bit about it and then, I guess, where it came from and why this is the direction you wanted to take this company.
1: Yes, of course. So let's break down first the consciousness piece, because that is a part of our theory of change, is that the, the quality of your culture at your organization is in direct correlation to the consciousness of the people within it, especially its leaders, and what we have found doing this work for so long is that when we slip into being less of who we are and less of what we intend, our consciousness level is at a level of fear. So whenever we're acting out of self-doubt or shame or fear, we tend to, that's when a lot of inequities happen. We tend to act out of our biases. We, in, we tend to unknowingly discriminate against other people, et cetera. And so a lot of the work that we do is about not just, you know, different strategies or practices, but also how do you think differently about yourself and how you relate to other people? Um, And so many of our, all of our programs start there and then weave that into, okay, what does that mean for practices and policies? And we can't talk about the program without talking about our program director, um, Lauren Henley. Um, You should definitely have her on your show. Um, she's a white leader herself, and she also is the brainchild behind it. She has you know, spent her the better part of her life studying what it means to be kind of white in this world, especially in this country, what it means to do the self-examining work it takes um, to really be integrity with who she really is, um, and what it means to also look at white supremacy and whiteness as a construct, because it is a construct. It's made up it's not of anybody and so the program is really about how to separate yourself from what we call the sick collective consciousness and really get back to who you are naturally um, and really un kind of tangle those
0: lies that we've all been conditioned to believe okay so you have the the conscious racist the conscious mm-hmm. racist, Yes. Um, which is your, your group program for white executives and directors. And then you have another program called the yes. Conscious Executive for um it says for leaders who identify as black, indigenous, and people of color. Yes. My question, and I'm I'm really curious to hear your answer on this, is if if the purpose is, you know, diversity inclusion. Yes. Why separate the two?
1: Yes. I love this question. It's really important. And what we've learned again through experience and through doing this work for so long is that oftentimes when you have everyone doing this kind of work together, what often unintentionally happens is that the work for white folks gets centered. um, And then sometimes unintentionally, it can harm the people of color in the room because they experience racism and microaggressions in a very different way. And sometimes they're positioned as teachers and they're not able to do their own work. We all have work to do, no matter what our racial background is. But it is very different based upon our level of privilege, based upon our proximity to whiteness, the construct of whiteness. And it's really important that we can be vulnerable in these spaces, that we can be honest. And we have found that folks do the deepest work and the most honest work when they're in race-based affinity groups. And they're able to at least have some sort of shared experiences and then can dive into the intersections, other intersections of their identity when they're together. It sounds counterintuitive, but we have found it actually helps people better then integrate back into their interracial workplace environments once they've been able to unpack what it is that they need to unpack as they go back with their colleagues.
0: And then the alumni community. Everyone's together, right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And we haven't started
1: that yet. That's coming soon. Whenever we work with, we also work with um, organizations in terms in long-term partnerships. And so when we do that, we do a lot of breaking apart and coming back together. So it's an iterative process. So there are parts of the program when we go through the six conditions for a liberatory culture. There are times when we break them up into race-based affinity groups, and then they come back together again to discuss what they've learned, um, and then of course discuss commitments that they'd like to make as an organization. So there's a it's an iterative back and forth process.
0: Okay, I'm I'm curious now, because when you were talking about the reasons for for the separation, mm-hmm. do you further I keep my mind wants to use the word segregate, but I don't know if that's the right word. Do you further segregate within those communities or yes. differentiate between male leaders and female leaders?
1: Sometimes, yes, we do. Um, especially when we do some of our sessions um, in the past, we you know say first the identifier is based upon race and then people can self kind of divide themselves as they like. So sometimes there might be a women Jewish group or there might be a queer group, et cetera. And so we very, of course, explicitly talk about the importance of intersectionality and how the intersections of different parts of our identity come together to form a very unique experience in our country. And it's important to be able to explore those different intersections. And so there are times where people can, of course, you know, um, go into subgroups as well, just like that. Um, And then there are other times we're all together as as a group. And I think it's really, really important. What we have found is that all groups have really talked about the value and being able to say things they didn't expect that they were going to say um, and be able to learn and ask questions that they probably otherwise wouldn't have asked if it were in a whole group.
0: Interesting. And is it all... I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question, but is it all voluntary or do you ever work with organizations and end up then working with people in those organizations who, I mean, you know, the the dude in the back corner with his arms folded sitting back in his chair who just really doesn't want to effing be here.
1: Yeah, that's something we've actually learned over the years. You know, as we're in the contracting phase, there are certain questions that we ask as an organization to make sure that they're a fit for us just like they're trying to assess whether we're a fit for them. And what we have found is something that I often say in conversations with executives, I'll say things like, you know, we're the kind of 2.0, 3.0 organization. We're not the organization that you would partner with if this is the first time you're doing work like this. Um, And so I make sure that there's some sort of commitment, living commitment to this work that's already in place, that's already in motion. It doesn't matter, you know, how far along they are, but we have to know that there's some sort of stated commitment. And, you know, and it's worked for us. You know, having that bar has really worked for us. And we, we cannot be more thankful for the clients that we
0: have. Awesome. So 10 years in business. Yes. Right. So the thing that is coming up for me when I think about this timeline, this 10-year timeline is, mm-hmm. and again, this is through the, the lens as a, a white woman in her 30s. Okay. I was from a mostly white state mm-hmm. who went to a very white college and grew up in a very white, small Wisconsin town. Mm-hmm. Um so for, for this company to be around for 10 years, I think yeah. ten years ago through my lens, and I'm curious what the like what the startup was, because from my lens, um race didn't come to the forefront mm-hmm. for for me for a member of the white community until just a few years ago and I know that it has been an issue long before that. Yes. Um but what I guess spurred this and as a a, a mom with two little kids like what was that process of getting this company this business started? Yes without without this being an issue at the forefront of the white community yet?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I have to, I can't answer that question, of course, without talking about my own story, right? My own life. My introduction to race was at five years old. You know, I'm a black woman. And so this is something that has been front and center for me. When I walk into a room, that's the first thing that people see even before my womanness is my blackness. My first day of school was in an all-white neighborhood, rural um, town called Pinckney, Michigan. I don't know how well you know Michigan, um, but anytime anyone's from Michigan, I say Pinckney, they usually make a face. Um, I'm pretty sure we were the first Black family, possibly last Black family to ever set foot in Pinckney, Michigan. When I got onto the bus, all the students moved to the edge of their seats. They called me Monkey. They called me Nigger. They called me all kinds of names. They threw things at me and I swayed up and down the aisle um, crying, and the bus driver did absolutely nothing, and I had no idea why the kids didn't like me. The next day, my father had a conversation with that bus driver, and it was decided that I would have an assigned seat um, behind the bus driver. So that's where I sat, and no one sat next to me the entire school year. So my introduction to school and race um, never left me. That's part of why I also became a teacher, I had my first black teacher when I was in the fifth grade. By that time, I was that really quiet student who didn't really do well in school. Um, I didn't think that I was very smart. I was made to feel that all the other white students were smarter than me and school was for them and not for me. Um, I had some pretty you know, racially biased teachers by that time. And it was that teacher who completely changed my self-concept. He called me a leader. And I was like, what, me? I'm so quiet. I don't even say anything. And he said, I see how you treat people, and I read your journals. And he completely changed my concept of what it means even to be a leader. Um, And I understood at a very young age the power of empathy, the power of being seen, the power of inclusion. And so that was something through many experiences, those are just two, but many, many experiences that shaped me and never left me. Um, I'm someone who's lived in rural towns. I've lived in the suburbs of Michigan, and I've also lived in Washington, D.C. most of my life. And so race has... I have friends of all different backgrounds, Um, and it's something that is very much a part of my consciousness, right, and has been for a very, very long time. And I like I said, it, of course, shaped me in the sense of first, I became a teacher and became a teacher in Baltimore City, very much on purpose, teaching 99% Black students um, in Park Heights. I always say Park Heights taught me how to teach and taught me how to live. And that experience also further shaped me and shaped in terms of open my eyes up to what it means to move organizations systemically, Um, To have outside external forces have one kind of agenda, and then how do you, in a specific organization, in that that case, a school, create a very different culture um, and a different experience so that no one ever feels how I felt on that school bus. And so, you know, it's experiences like that that have shaped how I see the world, how I see leadership, how I see the power of leadership. Um, and what definitely influenced me to move from school leadership into founding Lead for Liberation. Mm.
0: Your story is so powerful. Like I'm sitting back here like tearing up because that's not something that I had to experience. And that's not something that any, any child, any human should ever have to experience. Um, and I, I think of you know, my little almost four-year-old who he won't ever have to deal with anything like that, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll have his own issues. Um, my husband is an immigrant, so my kid's first-generation American, and there's there's stuff that comes with that, but he's he won't have to experience it to that level. And I'm curious how having your children was a – I'm assuming, a push in your journey.
1: Oh, of course. I mean, I think parenthood magnifies everything in your life <laughs> um, <laughs> on all the yeah. spectrum. <laughs> it, it magnifies it all in beautiful and messy ways. And of course, and I have the best of both worlds. I have a boy and a girl. And I always say, having a boy and a girl keeps me honest. And it keeps me honest mm-hmm. because it keeps me honest about how I'm treating them, how I'm raising them, where are my biases when it comes to gender. Um, and they've taught me so much about love and the, the range of love that is required, especially when you have Black children and you have a school system that was not built for them at all. And so I had a fire anyway, you know, lit up under me. And I've always treated my own students like they're my own. And then I had my own. And now that I'm navigating the education system with my children, you know, having knowing the education system inside and out, of course, it just it, it emboldens the the seeds that were already planted even before they were born. Um, and it just the sense of urgency and and even the compassion, though, too for for other families, the compassion for school leaders, the compassion for especially other parents, parenting black children in particular. It is really, really hard to balance the trade-offs um, because there are always trade-offs, unfortunately, um, when it comes to choosing schools and making sure you know schools have teachers who will see your child fully um, and who are doing the necessary ongoing work to work on their biases. We all have biases, all of us. Um, and it's it's really important that there are more and more schools who are deliberately providing ongoing training for everyone within their communities to make sure that everyone has the wonderful schooling experience that they need that will directly impact the trajectory of their lives.
0: So being a leader in this movement for work, what are those conversations at home? Like, what do they sound like? Because I am... Just having this conversation with you, I'm sure your children are head and shoulders above <laughs> on the on the the knowledge and background scale mm-hmm. than a lot of other, uh, not just Black children, but just a lot mm-hmm. of other children in general.
1: We actually were just having a conversation yesterday.
0: Um, they were both, they're
1: in summer camp right now. And there was, there's a camper that they both said were like, you know, The camper was, this particular boy was getting on both of their nerves, like everyone's nerves. And he was extra, just kind of talkative. And he tended to kind of tattletale a lot. Um, And just, they described him as annoying um, and kept kind of talking about his behavior. And, you know, I let them kind of talk and express themselves. And I said, you know, you never know, you know, do you think maybe um, there might be something going on or maybe they have a learning difference? And they were like, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) And so, you know, we have these conversations and anytime they bring something to me, I'm, I think it's always an opportunity to expand their perspective, um, to really, you know, allow them to see how there are, are always multiple truths happening at the same time. And there's always an opportunity to grow your capacity for empathy Because think about, you know, going, looping it back to my bus, you know, experience, had the bus driver had more empathy, that may have ended, right, a lot differently. And I may have had a different experience. And so, you know, empathy is so incredibly important. And so when I'm with my kids, they're, and we're just talking about regular, everyday things that come up. There are so many opportunities if we're aware of them, if we're looking for them to instill empathy in our children. And I try my best to, to, you know, take advantage of those opportunities that just pop up on their own.
0: So you have mentioned empathy several times throughout this conversation. I'm assuming then that that is part of how you define uh, authentic leadership is empathy is central to that. Um, I'd really like to hear, like, what within this um, space of diversity, inclusion, empathy, what leading authentically looks like. And I know obviously authenticity is going to be different to everybody. Yeah. But how to find that?
1: The first step is really it comes down to loving ourselves, loving slash trusting ourselves. And it just goes to any leader that I've ever had the pleasure of coaching, of training. Whenever we're unpacking a dilemma, whenever we're unpacking a persistent culture challenge or crisis that's happening, and I'm able to really unpack with the leader their role in it, almost always the root of it is a lack of self-trust. Um, There was a self-betrayal that happened first that then had the ripple effect, right, of some kind of inequity. And leading authentically really is about a practice of loving ourselves and giving compassion to ourselves for those shortcomings or perceived even shortcomings. Because there are things about ourselves for all of us that we pick at, that we don't like, that actually may be gifts to someone else. And it's really a practice of loving those parts of ourselves that we think aren't as lovable, or maybe it's that leadership skill we haven't been able to quote unquote master yet. Well, maybe it's not for you to master. You know, maybe you should lean into your strengths and hire for those things that maybe you're not as great at. Um, it really is about being honest about who you are. And being self-compassionate about who you are, loving who you are actively, and figuring out what that means for you. You know, loving yourself for some people could mean forgiving yourself um, for for something personally or professionally. We, you know, the greatest of leaders that I have seen are those leaders who um, live integrated lives. And what I mean by that is there isn't very much difference between who they are professionally and who they are personally. Because they're just grounded in a set of values that guide who they are. And that's how they show up everywhere. And that's what it means to me to, to lead authentically.
0: Do you have a, a favorite like self-compassion practice that you use or that you teach your clients? Like something that's,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I don't want to say easy because nothing, this work is not easy, but something that no. is simple.
1: Yes, I do. I call, I talk about this in my book. It's called the letters to spirit practice. So I call God spirit. So whatever you call your higher power. Um, and basically what I do is at the end of each day, just a stream of consciousness, I write down those things, my worries. So all those doubts that I have, those things I'm worried about, um, those things that seem beyond my control um, and that are maybe even keeping me up at night. I just write about those things. And I literally say, dear spirit, as if, as if I'm writing to God. And I just say, this is going on. Can you help me with this? I'm surrendering this to you. This is what's going on. Right. So Mm -hmm. just quick, write. Then I turn the page and I literally write a letter back to myself and I write dear Shana. And I just write as if I'm writing to my best friend. And I, you know, just write like, you know what, you have this, you've seen something like this before, you know, and I just allow myself to really drop from my head and into my heart and just see what comes up when I write back to myself in a loving way. Um, And almost every time I do this, I feel so much better. Um, And, you know, I just feel lighter and of course, more ready for bed too, that I'm not kind of sitting there with my worried thoughts just running in my mind. I've gotten them up and out.
0: I love that practice. Okay, so for the entrepreneur who wants to to take a a step on this journey, yes, um, where where do we go? Where do we find you? Do you have other resources I to sure help support? Like, we're not talking Fortune five hundred CEOs, but the <laughs> the women who want to get there. Yes.
1: I call them the women who are at a crossroads and I tend to attract women who are at a crossroads and you're, you're, you're wanting to start something new. You maybe, um, you have had maybe a a life change as well. Usually happens around the same time. I would definitely, um, guide folks to purchase my book. It's called Becoming an Indigo Woman, How to Thrive in Leadership in Life. And it really is written as if you've signed up for a coach, a coach. And I'm. that's literally how I wrote it. I kind of wrote it as if I was talking to clients who were signing up to really go on a journey of rebirthing. Um, it's written through my coaching methodology, which is rebirth, reset, renew. Um, and it really is about how to rebirth the new version of you that's emerging because whatever business you start, of course, needs to be informed by who you are and your story. That's what's going to keep you in it. You need a strong why, and it should be something that lights you up. Um, And then the reset piece is really all about when times get tough, because they will. How do you go? What are those practices you can go back to to really anchor yourself? And then the renew part of the book is really about what are those life-sustaining practices that will help you ground in joy and peace and harmony um, and that will keep you going for the long haul. Um, and so, again, it's Becoming an Indigo woman, woman, How to Thrive, in Leadership in Life.
0: Awesome. And we will absolutely link that in the show notes along with your LinkedIn profile, your Instagram, your Lead for Liberation website with all of it. Um, Shana, it has been a lovely conversation. I have really enjoyed getting to know you, and I, I'm looking forward to, to seeing more and to, to working with you in the future. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and took something away that you can apply to your own life or organization. Be sure you tune in next week when I sit down with Lauren Henley, who works with Shana and is going to share her experiences and a little bit more of the nitty gritty of how they serve through Lead for Liberation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Leadership podcast. I sincerely hope that you got something out of today that you are going to be able to take and use on your journey to wherever it is you're going. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe and share your takeaways on social media. Don't forget to tag me at Sarah May Ski on Instagram. While you're waiting for the next episode, please check out our exclusive Beyond Leadership community over on Facebook to connect with more like-minded and like-hearted individuals dedicated to learning, leading, and encouraging right alongside you every day. Until next time, let's go.